Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series. Welcome back to Codish. My name is Jonan Scheffler. I am a developer advocate here at Heroku, and I am joined today by a very special guest. I'm out here for Traversal Conference. Uh, or Traversal Conf? Is it just Traversal? Traversal Conf. Traversal Conf, I think is good. Or just, I don't know. In any case, I'm out here for this one <laughs> conference that goes we by Traversal. We don't know where we are. It's fine. <laughs> uh, and I am, am joined uh, by my good friend, Vaidehi Joshi. Introduce yourself, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Vaidehi. Um, I am a software engineer at a company based in Portland called Tilda. And you might know us from our work on a little product called Skylight. It's a Rails profiler, your favorite Rails profiler, hopefully. The best one. <laughs> I used to work at New Relic. I worked at New Relic when Skylight was released, so I don't know. Ooh. We were watching you very carefully when you came along. I think they're actually kind of complementary products. They provide different things at this point. If I yeah. build a new Rails app, I want both. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think they actually do kind of different things. So it's yeah. inter interesting when we get lumped in together. But um, we also do some open source work. A um, little bit of that Ember stuff. Yeah, we yeah. made that little thing called Ember. <laughs> Ember comp, and um, yeah. And yeah, like we're pretty active uh, in the Rails community. Um, some of my coworkers are on the Rust core team. They used to be on the Rails core team. Um, so yeah, we're big on like open source, and uh, we're generally like performance-minded as people. People who like to get down to the nitty-gritty and benchmark things. If you are someone who finds yourself benchmarking everything, maybe you'd like to go work at Tilda. Does Tilda have any open positions? That's so funny you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> we are actually hiring. Um, yeah, we're looking for some staff engineers, and we're really open to like people who you know maybe went to a boot camp, people who are performance-minded, people who you know are interested in ops stuff, um, because. We really care about our product, and we take it in different directions. And we like, we're a very small team, so we do all the different parts of like. You wear a lot of hats. Yes. 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 So if you are someone who likes hats, you know. Come along. <laughs> I think though this is important because what you're describing to me is that you're trying to cast a wide net. And I think anyone when they're trying to get people into a pipeline to hire onto their team, mm -hmm. uh, they they cast as wide a net as they possibly are able. And yet people go and they read those job descriptions, and they're like. Ah, uh, no, it said blue hair, I don't have blue hair, so I'm out, yeah. right? You eliminate yourself. I think what you're asking really is, please don't eliminate yourself. Yeah. Look at our job description. If it doesn't describe you exactly, assume it's a mistake and apply yeah. anyway. Yeah, it, it's, I don't even think it can describe everyone exactly. That's that's what we want. We want like lots of people to feel like, hey, I like what they're doing, and I could maybe see myself there. Exactly. So don't, don't shy away from it. But I'm sure it's going to work out great, and you'll love working there. You get to work with brilliant people. Speaking of brilliant people, <laughs> tell me about Base CS. What is Base CS? So Base CS is, uh, well, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. It's grown into a much bigger thing than it was originally. So what it started off as was a personal project for me where um, I decided that I wanted to learn computer science because I don't have a CS degree. Um, and this was like probably a couple years into my career as a developer, and I would hear people reference computer science -y things, and I would nod and smile, and then in my head I'd be like, no idea what that means. Right. I should put a pin in that, one day I should learn it. And then yep. I just realized, oh, there are a lot of things in this category I should learn, this is a big gap. So at some point I was just like, you know, I, I wanna you know, challenge myself this year, this is a big gap, why don't I try to fill that gap this year? 
Um, and I, I'm like a person who makes lists and I like schedules. So for me, like having a project that aligns to a calendar year really works well. This was immediately obvious to me. As soon as I heard <laughs> that you had taken all this project, I was like, this is a person who likes to check boxes on lists because it was intense. Tell, them, tell people about this project you started. It was 52 weeks in a row. You wrote a blog post about what? Yes. So I decided I was going to do, I was going to write a blog post about one computer science topic every week for a year. Uh, I actually think I skipped two weeks, so it's Ooh. technically 50 weeks. Was it around the holidays? That's fine. No, we'll it was just like you. two weeks where I was like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to, you know, I'm not going to be near Wi-Fi or a computer. Uh, and this yeah. was early on, so I don't think anybody noticed. Sounds but like sometimes... a lovely two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it was so early, though, that I didn't realize how nice it was. And oh, then by yeah. the time December rolled around, I was like, I've been writing every week for so long yep and when you get down to like the 35th episode if you're a couple days late people start to email yeah. and they're like where is my fix yeah, yeah yeah they started paying attention i was like oh good I, good thing i didn't like miss any posts in the end at the end of the year but so you started out teaching yourself these computer science concepts because it was a hole in your own learning you realized about yourself you wanted to be able to have these things honestly i uh, have a pretty non-traditional background as well i was a, a poker dealer and many other things in a former life but wow. i eventually found my way into software yeah um, coming through the hungry academy program which uh, was created by Jeff Casimir, who now runs Touring Academy here in Denver. And Touring is heavily involved with the production of Traversal Conf uh, and, of course, many other uh, events and activities around the Denver area. Yeah. Great, great uh, code school to be a part of. Like, it's the one that I recommend to people today still. Like, when someone comes to me and asks me what code school they should attend in the country, Touring is, is the top of my list. I'm yeah. curious to know about yours. Yeah, I think when I was applying, so I also went to coding boot camp. Um, I applied to the Flatiron School, and Turing, I think, was my second. And the only, I think the big reason I didn't, I put Flatiron first was I was like, oh, it's in New York City. I want to be in New York. Yeah. And I think it was a shorter amount of time. Um, but yeah, Turing was up there for me, too, because I think the thing that really drew me to those two boot camps was the fact that they both were kind of um, pretty transparent about the fact that they wanted applicants from diverse backgrounds. Right. And I don't just mean like, you know, diverse in terms of where you're from, but like You don't what? mean like someone puts star diversity on their homepage? <laughs> like no, I, I think what was cool is they were both like, we want like artists and musicians and writers and teachers. And I think by setting, like creating this kind of level playing field, it made me feel like if I go to this coding bootcamp, no one's gonna look at me like I'm stupid. Or you don't belong. Yeah, because everyone else is also coming with a different, you know, different things to the table. And right. none, no one there is going to expect that I have the certain level. And it was kind of amazing because everybody was extremely talented, but I think all of us were like, oh, maybe I don't belong here. Yeah. But everyone else says that we're it's okay for us to be here yeah but we're like, all we're all going to be imposters together <laughs> yeah. right and yeah. that's the thing i talk about this often to people coming into software that if you were to study as hard and as fast if you could replicate what vitae has done with this 52 that's crazy it was a crazy amount of work you were talking about it i think it was like eight hours or ten hours a week you're putting in 20 yeah. hours yeah. 22 i think was the number you came up with during the presentation i remember yeah. now i think jeff hours. did the math for me because at some math. point i was like i don't want to I, yeah you were like adding it. them up so it's four hours to do the images and yeah so a <laughs> A lot of work every week for a whole year so if you uh learn to, to study like uh you can obviously you have learned to learn at this point and you spend the rest of your life studying software concepts you may get one percent competent at what is out there mm -hmm. but it's going to be a different one percent than the person sitting next to you mm -hmm. and every other piece you 
every other person you meet in software. So early on, it's easy to look around and feel like you're looking uphill all the time. Yeah. Everyone is better than you at something, yeah. but you're better than some people at a lot of things, yeah. even fresh out of a code school. And I think that's the hardest thing to convey. And there people. are going to be hills no matter what. That's the thing. Like you could be doing it for 20 years and then like you could be super competent at Ruby, for example, or like React, which it's not even been 20 years of React, right, so of course, who knows yeah. what that'll be. Although but I've seen people looking for 20-year experience React <laughs> yeah, developers, of course, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's always interesting. But you could be super good at that, and then you could turn around one day and be like, oh, I have to learn about, oh, ops? I've been doing it for so long. This is a hill that I don't know about. I'm very good at, and I'm standing at the top of my hill, but you know, there's going to be a time, probably multiple times, where you're going to have to you know, look up again. and ascend. And yeah. it's, as long as you know how to learn and you're like, all right, I've seen this before. This is a different... I'm, I'm tackling a different subject, but I know how to go up the hill. That's the most important thing. Exactly in my what I tell people is that we are professional learners. Mm -hmm. We joke a lot about how we Google things that like all I do all day as a senior software engineer at Google is Google things, mm -hmm. right? Well, true, but moreover, you know what to Google mm -hmm. and you know how to quickly assimilate that information and mm -hmm. take action on it. Mm -hmm. So speaking of learning and how you became such a good learner, this was in fact the topic of your talk, how to learn. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about it. So uh, basically what I learned through doing BaseCS, the written version, which I didn't mention earlier, but that actually spun off into a podcast, and then there's a video series. So I've basically taken this computer science content and like uh, developed it for different mediums. Yeah. But in the process of writing the original version, I realized that I had a specific way of learning, and I started wondering like how... First of all, am I learning correctly? Which is right. All, uh, now that I think about it, it's a silly question because like if you're learning... Are you learning if, correctly? Yeah. Like, right. if you're learning, then you're doing it the You've right way for you. You've already achieved the goal. If you're doing, like, a, a goal-based assessment, yeah. then yes, you are doing it. But could you be doing it more efficiently, maybe? Yeah, and yeah. I, I guess the question I was trying to answer as I thought about it was, like, oh, how do people learn? Because this is this feels like, you know, a very a very big task because I don't even have any anywhere to really start. I don't have a good foothold. I'm kind of starting out in the middle of nowhere. Right. So I was wondering, like, okay, well, how do you learn a new thing in general? And... I started reading about the, psycho the psychology of learning and the science behind it and like reading like books on education. And there was one uh, name that popped up a lot, which is, um, you might've heard of him, this guy named Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman, yeah. the Feynman technique. This is, I love actually, I love Richard Feynman and reading about, he had a very interesting life. And yes, he did. He was a did. very uh, eccentric and interesting man. Yeah. But I, I, I took notes from your presentation. You'll be so proud of me, Teach. <laughs> I was taking careful notes. Which is what I told everyone. I was like, write it down. Write it down. <laughs> it makes you remember. All right. So the, the four steps mm -hmm. to the Feynman method. I'm going to teach you again because I'm trying to cement this knowledge and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. But mm -hmm. I understand them to be that I identify the subject that I'm trying to learn about. That's my first step. Just mm -hmm. identify. I'm mm -hmm. scoping, right? We're scoping the software project. Uh, I explain what I know or what I think I know about that subject to a uh, casual third party. You used the example of ex try explaining it to a child. Mm -hmm. If you can explain it to a five-year-old, you really know it. Yeah. Right? Yes. I and there's some caveats to how you're going to explain it to a five-year-old because you cannot rely on a lot of things you might rely on if you're explaining it to you know your teammate or somebody who knows all the terms. Okay. You explain it to someone like they're a five-year-old or they're new or they don't have any context of the field. Which and is, I think, step two. In step so doing, you mm -hmm. hopefully identify any gaps mm -hmm. in your own knowledge. Mm -hmm. Because uh, 
I think this happens a lot in software where you run into a bug. They call it rubber ducking. I'm sure you're familiar with this term. Mm -hmm. Many software developers will even have a rubber duck on their desk yeah. because uh, it's a very good way to find problems in your own thinking or assumptions that you are making. It's always just some silly assumption. You're like, well, I know this variable is being set here. And, and every time that you actually have to explain that to another developer, when you say the words out loud, you're like, I know this instance variable here has a five in it. So, and then that developer inevitably says, how do you know? Well, it sets a five in the, well, could you show me? Can you prove it? Why don't we output the value? Oh, it's three? Yeah, so you, the assumption you made this whole time, that hour you just wasted, this is why rubber ducking uh, is so valuable. But I feel like having to explain a concept that you have just learned to someone else mm -hmm. is similar in process in that you very quickly identify your own shortcomings. Mm -hmm. When you can't explain it succinctly, you maybe don't understand as much as you thought you did. Yep, that's, there's the rub. That's, that's the core concept of the Feynman technique, I think. I think so too, and I really liked this piece. I wanted to highlight that you talked about jargon in our industry is a big problem in mm -hmm. software. Obviously, we're all throwing around acronyms all the time, and I make a point, I remember especially when I first got into software, I had a notepad on my desk, just a moleskin, and I would write down any time I heard a thing that I didn't know what it was. I did that too. Yeah. That's awesome. So I, I sidetracked us a little bit here because I wanted to talk about jargon, and the jargon that I experience as a developer advocate is a little bit different because I've got one foot in the marketing industry as well. So I thought that developer jargon was intense until I met marketing jargon. My <laughs> goodness, you all can say a lot of words without saying anything that I understand. <laughs> so tell me about that. Like what role jargon plays in this whole Feynman technique? Yeah, so I think that there's a step in the Feynman technique where when you explain something to someone who is not in the industry or who's maybe like um, a newbie or in the case of the Feynman technique explicitly explain it to like a five-year-old or a child, you can't use jargon. Right. You have to strip away all those terms, all that terminology that you wouldn't ordinarily use. And the moment you do that, you quickly realize, oh, I was using the word for this, but I don't actually know what it means. And I think that is actually where the learning kind of happens like I was saying earlier like oh that's the crux of it because that's when you realize oh I have a gap in my knowledge here right I'm using the word um you know caching but can I explain caching without using the word caching yeah well or using the word cache no, yeah like it, how do you hard. explain what that concept is yeah. and I think the people who are really you know they really fundamentally understand something don't have to rely on that right because they've understood it deeply enough that they are like no, I can explain the idea to you without using the words. And I think in our industry in particular, like we love to use jargon and terminology sometimes to kind of to kind of prove what we know. Right. Um, and it's a little bit of a charade because like just because you know the word for something doesn't mean you know it. Um, right. So I challenge myself and other people to try to not lean on that as a crutch because we have a tendency to do that. And it's it's often, especially in tech and in academia and computer science, it's like a very gatekeeper-y thing to do. It like, is. I'm going to use this term and you don't know what it is, so you don't really belong here, which is right. a silly thing. It's a very exclusionary thing. And really, yeah. it's just as simple as asking the question and learning thing. Because it turns out nobody ever knew anything before they were taught it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah. So this is very common to convince my children that like, 
someone else who doesn't know how to ski just because you know how to ski does not mean they're, they're stupid or bad or never going to learn. They, they have not learned mm -hmm. to ski. So the fourth one that I left off here was to organize and simplify back into a narrative. So I identify gaps in my knowledge. In many cases, realizing where I was using jargon to gloss over something, I would do this, um, for example, talking about any Rails app. Where mm -hmm. I'm like, so a web request comes into the server, something, something, rack, and then uh, you get a web page back. Yeah. Ta-da! Like, we do this all the time, right? Yeah. And, and you might say, like, well, and it goes all the way through the middleware layer, of course. Mm -hmm. But what you're really you're not talking about the 18 middlewares that are called and how they might be mutating things or whatever. Mm -hmm. you, you don't, you use it as a mechanism for abbreviating conversations yeah. so you can get work done, but you may also be hiding gaps in your knowledge and yeah. you need to identify those. Once you have, then you organize and you simplify into a narrative. Tell me about that, what do you mean by that? That's basically like the way of distilling the information and presenting it back to someone else and that's kind of like where you actually get to do the fun part of teaching someone. Right. And you get to kind of put your own you know, twist on it, your own spin on your understanding because everybody's going to explain something a different way. Yes. Um, and I, I like the idea of, you know, organize it in maybe the structure that you would have liked to uh, have been taught it if someone when was teaching it When you were there, right. Yeah. Because then, a big part of your presentation in the beginning was about how you went to read up on some of these resources. It was yeah. a radix... Matrices? Radix tree. Radix trees. Oh, you were reading about radix trees. Is a radix matrix even a thing? Did I just make that up? I, I, I am sure there's a computer be, science concept probably. that I don't know <laughs> about. I doubt it very much. <laughs> Please, um, someday when I apply at Google, don't judge me for my lack of knowledge on radix matrixes. Um, so you, you were looking up radix trees, and the, the information that was out there was just terrible. Because you know very often you are addressing your target market, when you're talking about radix trees, are other computer scientists mm -hmm. who understand. Mm -hmm. And so the, the entry level content sometimes is missing on these topics. Yeah. And that's where base CS came in. Yeah. Yeah. And someone I think actually asked me, they're like, so what would you do? Like, how did you learn it? And I was like, well, I would go to the Wikipedia page and then I would see how far I could get. Usually not that far. Then I would try to like supplement my own gaps and be like, okay, I understand this little piece from this blog post, this piece from this lecture video. And so the step of organize and simplify is kind of like, okay, what are the things you really need to know? That's what I'm going to explain to you first. And then I'll build on that. And the simplify into a narrative is like, oh, I can kind of tell a story about this data structure. Or if you're telling, if you're telling someone like how a web request works, you can like, turn it into a step-by-step -step process rather than just be like, oh, it comes in in the middleware, something, something, controller, bye. Right. Which is not a story, it's just like right. words. But <laughs> even if you simplify it just, or, or, or humanize it just a mm -hmm. little bit and say, all right, let's say you're gonna buy some shoes and you go to a website and then you, you keep the rest of the presentation exactly the same, but at the end, you show a picture of shoes and you say, now you got your shoes. Then, then suddenly it's a story. Yeah. I argue often that teaching is storytelling. That if yeah. you're not presenting it according to a narrative, then you are rambling off a list of facts and you only get a couple of minutes of attention for that. But if you tell a story, you have my attention for hours. And I think it applies beyond just like, oh, I'm speaking at a conference. If you're with your team and you're like, I want to pitch this idea, we should use this new add-on or this feature. Like if you tell it as a story of like, okay, say I wanted to do this, I wanted to debug this problem, but this tool isn't really great. And like with this new idea that I'm pitching, if we use this service, like if you tell it as a story, first of all, you have them more hooked and like the humanizing thing is a big thing, I think, because it's not just, it's not even just like teaching. It's like anytime you want to communicate an idea, you have to have the audience buy into it. Exactly. And sometimes it's, 
people on your team, sometimes it's students, sometimes it's your boss, your manager, you know, other stakeholders, CEOs, CTOs, what have you. You want to make your idea compelling and being able to present it in a way that's like a narrative or organized or like approachable. That right. changes the whole thing. Yeah. It's a game changer, really. It is. And I you think when you realize ultimately that your goal here is to persuade, you're mm -hmm. trying to present uh, in a way that keeps people engaged and convince them of something. Mm -hmm. And, and I, sometimes it's hard for me to identify that because I think, well, I'm not trying to convince them of everything. I'm just going to try and teach them how uh, TLS works mm -hmm. on the inside. I just want developers to know because I think it's interesting, right? But what I'm actually trying to convince them is that they should also find it interesting and valuable yeah. to their careers and that they should like the things that I like. Yeah. Humans like nothing less than when other people like things they don't, I've noticed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, you started BaseCS with this blog thing, mm -hmm. and that's been running for a while. Um, we now have another version of the, I guess it's not a version, it's a distinct thing, Base DS. Yeah. Okay, tell me about that. So Base DS was probably, I guess, two years ago. That was like the basics of computer science, and that's like one whole fundamental level. But there are other ways that you can kind of um, fill in gaps that apply to your role as a software engineer. So one of the things that I was personally interested in at my company is like ops and like how on earth we keep our application running and like what happens when things go down and i was like oh, i understand like computer science i think a little bit better i understand our framework our you know the tools we're using but i don't know anything about this um and that was kind of when i started reading a bit more about distributed systems and all the complexities that they introduce right and i was like oh well this is another gap in my knowledge i know nothing about this I just know some of the phrases and the terms. Right. So I decided to try to kind of apply the same strategy that I use with BaseCS in terms of learning something and then distilling my knowledge, you know, sharing it with other people in the way that I wish it, that resource had existed. Because yes. I've noticed with distributed systems, it's a similar thing. Like, there are lots of things you can read. Not all of them make sense. Right. Well, because the people working on distributed systems are specialized. You get yeah. very specialized, and I think this is true of new fields because computing is so new. We start talking about uh, deep learning uh, or neural networks, and now we have a number of neural network experts. Mm -hmm. We don't have a whole bunch of neural network beginners probably today, just yet. Yeah. In five years, we will definitely have an army of neural network beginners. And the I don't ones think that's that are out away. there, I'm sure, are having not an easy time. Yeah. Because like, they will be experts eventually, but right now they're probably going through the slog of like, what does it mean? Like, what what are these terms? Like, what are the goals? Like, what are these tools? How do I use them? And that's like, that is a huge hump to get over. Yeah. Um, and it's it can be really painful. I know from firsthand. Experience. Hopefully, they learn to channel that rage into something productive, <laughs> like improving the for the people to come behind. Yeah. Yeah. But so base DS is basically uh, the basics of distributed systems. So that is a project I'm working on this year. It's in written format. It is every I publish every other Wednesday. So it's not as frequent as BaseCS, which was every Monday for a year. Oh, my goodness. But I think this one's a little bit more sustainable. And I, uh, the quality, I hope, will continue to be the same. That made your Mondays extra bad, though. Because if you had a busy week, then your Saturday and Sunday were like, uh, I've got to do 15 hours of work to get this blog post out the door. Well, I think when you start developing a habit, like you start realizing that you can't write it on Sunday night. <laughs> Turns out that pain is a real good impetus for change. Yeah, when, it, when you suffer repeatedly, yeah. sometimes you learn. So the I, uh, final question was, if you remember what your first base CS was, what was the very first base CS you did? Oh, yeah. Uh, it was binary. 
Binary. Yeah. What even is it? Yeah. What Why is do we it? Care? Um, how do you count in it? Because I didn't know how to even count in it. I was like, I don't know, zeros and ones. I don't yeah. know. And I was like, okay, computer science. Ones and zeros seem like a good place to Right. Start. Yeah. It really is, though. <laughs> yeah. But I was just like, okay, I'm going to learn how to count in binary. I'm going to con- learn how to convert between binary and base 10, or which mm-hmm. is like, you know, the, the, the number system we use. Right. Um, and then it actually was cool because then, you know, I got into like bytes and how. Um, how many bytes can store things, and you get into like, oh, this is like what bytes actually means when I've been dealing with it for years, but I didn't know like what that actually translates to. So as I went on through the series, starting with binary, like a lot of light bulbs started to click, which is cool. But when you start out, you're just like, I mean, I hope the ones and zeros mean something. I hope this is relevant and this will help me, but I think it all built on each other. All All this post built on themselves rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the you did they occur naturally to you as you moved along? The first one was binary, and the next one you already had lined up as you were writing binary. You were like, you know what I should talk about next? It's definitely this thing. Well, it's interesting. The thing that you were talking about earlier, where you wrote down what you didn't know in a notebook. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know how do you teach yourself computer science. I didn't have like a syllabus. Like there are computer science programs that have syllabi, right? And you can look at them. But I was just like. Is this the order to follow? I don't know. But I think as I started learning one topic after another, I would see it referencing other parts of computer science. So I would be like, okay, I'm going to learn about, um, you know, trees. And then something would reference binary search. And then right. something would reference balanced trees. Or radix matrixes. Yeah, and it would just all like... Those are not a real thing again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, I would just see the connections. And I was like, I'm not going to worry about what on earth a radix tree is yet. But right. I know that it's a type of tree. Yeah. So I'm going to do trees next week. And somewhere down the line, I'll get into that. So you, you know things that are kind of piling up and that you'll investigate in the future. And you're like, okay, here's one more thing I don't know. But I know it exists now. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to like formulate it into some sort of like organic order that I will go through. And It's like you're trying to make a tree structure of all the information that exists. And you build it out as you go. And sometimes you don't even know where it goes. So you just keep it on the side. And then eventually you're like, oh. Oh, this ah, is where this comes in. And the pieces start to make sense as yeah. you build. So that was, it brought up another question for me, which is how do you know when a topic, you, you had a target size for these blog posts, presumably. When you're talking about binary, how do you decide if um, endianness is relevant, for example? Or do we hold off on talking about endianness till we talk about processor architecture or whatever, right? How do you decide which pieces fit into which bucket? I think... Um, I tried to keep each of them somewhat digestible. So if they got started to get too long or if I was like, for example, I would start um, writing about a topic and be like, oh, this is actually four topics. Yep. You need to first understand what this data structure is before you can understand how to search through it, before you can understand the big O notation of it. You have to separate them out. And so when you, that's, I think, kind of like the identify what is the thing you're actually trying to learn right. and then separate it out. Um, and I, I think it helps as you go through one topic at a time because if you're just dealing with one concise thing, you realize, oh, this is actually multiple, or oh, this is a good, like, concise topic in and of itself. Someone can read this, come away with something new, and not feel like they need to go learn 65 new things in order to understand what they just read. Exactly. Which is a danger, I think, when you have a lot of content. To right, and it's so easy to. Um overstimulate someone who is just learning and keep unloading because they do get excited when they start to understand and you're doing a good job and you're on a roll and then you keep throwing down and it's exhausting. Yeah. I think the the impulse that you have to make it as small as possible and I just even if we try to make it
it as small as possible. It's still probably too big when we're done. Yeah. You know, whatever the topic matter is. But that that distillation process, I think, is really the essence of assembling along a narrative. Yeah. These new pieces of knowledge, and again, something you all of the things that you just said you do to to follow this process. Those are the Feynman learning technique mm -hmm. again, right? Where you're identifying the things that you don't know as a first step and. I actually realize this is an unrelated topic of procrastination, but that I am realizing now as, as a grown-up, and I'm not going to tell you all day because it took me way too many years to get here, <laughs> that almost all of the procrastination I've done in, in uh, my life is a scoping problem. It's because I was avoiding a task because I didn't understand the first thing to do mm -hmm. to accomplish it. And when I started putting things on my to-do list with step one under them, mm -hmm. it really changed things for yeah. me because then I no longer have to think about this monumental task. I've got to release a new episode of Base CS next week. What I have to think about is look up Radix Tree. Yeah. Right. Google Radix Tree. And, and then maybe, all I have to do is that Maybe you step. don't even do Radix Tree. Maybe you look it up and you're like, oh, this is actually not the right starting point. I'll pivot. It's okay. But yeah, the hardest part has got to be starting. And once you're started, even if you were wrong with your first step, you transition very naturally. Mm -hmm. I used to trick my brain sometimes with these time boxes that were absurdly small. I'd be like, well, you really don't want to learn React today because uh, <laughs> you'd rather play video games. But instead, you you can play all the video games you want if you do five minutes of React. And of course, five minutes later, I'm really excited about this thing yeah. I've just done and I keep rolling. Yeah. Right? Getting started is the hardest part. Uh, and unfortunately, we have to finish instead. But it was really nice talking with you, Betty. Thank it you for It was lovely me. to talk to you, too. Thank yeah. you for having me on. And thank you so much for your hard work on Base CS and Base DS. I will put some links in the show notes so our users can check them out. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. I hope they find it helpful. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.